0: Since it's been about three months since we we're in the book of Mark, I want to give you a little bit of a review or a recap so that we know right where we are. Be very simple. But in the text we're about to look at, we know that it's Tuesday afternoon of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. This is right before his crucifixion. Jesus and his disciples, they've been in the temple for quite a while, he's been teaching. Uh, He's been interacting with various religious leaders, being questioned by them. We talked extensively about that. Now they're actually moving out of the temple. They're heading back to the Mount of Olives, eventually to Bethany. They're going to stay the night on the Mount of Olives, which we'll continue to go through here the next few weeks. And while this is taking place, while they're exiting the temple, one of the disciples points out the beauty of the structure that they were just in for for some time. And it's quite reasonable for them to do so. And this comment leads to a conversation where Jesus unfolds the future of what we might call the last days or the end times. And uh, here's what the Bible says, Mark 13, verse one. As he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, "'Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones "'and what wonderful buildings.' "'And Jesus said to him, "'Do you see these great buildings?' Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I've told you um, a lot of things about my life, and I don't want to belabor the point or extensively go back over some of that. But as you know, in 1999, I became a Christian, gave my life to Jesus. And at the time, I was attending Shoreline Community College. And one day I came to school and there was a group of people passing out flyers. These flyers were essentially an invite to a Bible prophecy class that was on campus. And I can remember the flyers to this day. It had like dark clouds and angels and trumpets and a scroll. And it kind of reminded me of this picture that I found um, online. Something like that. Very intriguing. Now, um, yeah, you're just going to get lost in this picture. I was, uh, br- I was a brand new Christian. And so when I saw the flyer, one of the things that I thought was like, man, I must attend this Bible prophecy class because... Uh, now. It, to get you into my frame of mind, I was on drugs and alcohol and all kinds of sin, all that stuff, right? I get totally delivered. I come to Christ, lose all my friends. Now I'm on fire and I'm going to Shoreline Community College with, with a smile on my face and joy in my heart. I mean, I'm filled with joy. And so these people that were inviting me to this Bible prophecy class were full of intensity. And I'm like, oh, yes. My joy turned into urgency. I must go to this class. And so I attended the class every single week until they moved it to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And then I realized, and I'm not gonna come again Seventh-day Adventist today, but I got stuff to say. But I, when they went to the church, I realized there was a, they wanted to get me to their church. And so I, you know, hightailed it out of there. But I did attend all of those classes, and they gave me a Bible, and I still have the Bible to this day. It looks like this, and I want to show you a picture of it. Now, when they give you a Bible like this, you are like, time is running out. I must read this book. <laughs> you know, there's, an, there's like an intensity. I kept the Bible, you know, just in case I ever need a little bit of fear in my life, you know. So <laughs> that Bible was worth twice the price, I'm telling you what. And, and so I learned from the, this was my introduction to this urgency concerning the end times, the last days, eschatology, and they had a lot of views. I won't go over those today, but they had a lot of views on the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, and this, what we're reading today, is the Olivet Discourse, which is found in Luke 21 and Matthew 24. And many of us have been taught a lot of things. In fact, I went, with Calvary Chapel, I went through two rounds of the book of Revelation, and since then, I've had to unlearn some things because I don't now agree with everything that I previously learned uh, from them, which again, I love Calvary Chapel, a lot of friends that are pastors in Calvary Chapel, but I just didn't, I don't find myself in the same mindset that I used to in some ways. And, and in some ways I, I do, but The point is, is that we've got a lot of differences when it comes to eschatology because we've been taught some things, many of us. How many of you have gone through end times teaching in your life? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right. So there's no, this is not a fair game at this point. (laughs) Mark chapter 13 is by far the most difficult passage in all of the gospels to interpret, by far. And I've noticed something that whenever we approach this conversation, about the return of Jesus and all that transpires before that, we have wrongly interpreted the scripture and we have a lot of repeated errors that we still persist in to this day. I just want to bring up a few of them because I was feeling a certain kind of way. So here's number one. We have a tendency to filter specific passages like Daniel 9-12, through Revelation Mark 13, through our current times. People have been doing this forever and we still do it and we don't think anything's wrong about it. I I think there is. Number two, we have a desire to know specific dates and timeframes at the expense of knowing and obeying the clear commands of Jesus. We invest so much of our time and energy into knowing these dates and times and we ignore the plain, clear teaching of Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. I I I digress. Number three, We have a long track record of getting the subject wrong and changing our views on Bible interpretation, which leads me to point four. We have a lack of generosity in this area and can be willing to divide over it when it's not salvational. And that to me just feels unchristian. One of my friends um, came to a different, he's no longer pre-tribulation for the rapture, and he preached on that at his church, and he had a number of people leave the church because in their orthodox view of the end times, they felt that pre-trib rapture was as orthodox or as salvational as the other issues. And he had folks leave the church, and I thought, that is the worst reason to leave the church. Pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, this is all an in-house discussion. And if you guys have any of those pre Mid or post, it's cool. There are some views that I don't think are cool. Those ones are all fine. But I'm just saying we have a lack of generosity and we make a lot of minor issues part of our orthodoxy. And it's very sad that we keep doing that, knowing that this is an issue that we have been wrong about forever. But wait, there's more. (laughs) With all that said, it's important to know that there are two primary ways of looking at this text. Now, I admit there are others, and I'm, I know the views, all right? I, I'm, I understand them. There are points of confusion that I have. I don't mean like I get them and uh, I could teach them as well as others. I mean, I have looked at the different views on the Olivet Discourse, and I just want to bring up the two primary views that there are, and up front, I want to tell you which view I have so you know where I'm teaching from. I, I always like to know where the train's going. You know, are we getting off in Detroit or New York? Pastor Ben, where are, you, where are you taking us? I like to let people know, okay? So that way you're not on a roller coaster that you're not aware of. You know where we're going. So, number one, some people believe that verse 1 through 31 in this text predicts the destruction of the temple, and then verse 32 to 36 summarize basically the return of Christ. That, that view is out there. That's. Uh, that's what some people hold. The majority of people that hold this view would be considered post-millennial, which I am not. I'm pre-millennial. And uh, some of them are partial preterists. Now, these are all terms I will talk a little bit more about next week. I don't find myself in those camps, and I struggle with the text to accept some of their ideas to get there personally. And And I'll go through that with you. Number two. This is my view, and, and this is also a predominant view in a lot of Pentecostal churches, but I do have some addendums. Some people believe verse 1 through 13 predict the destruction of the temple and the unfolding of the last days, which I would say is the day of Pentecost until the return of Christ. So the last days, the time frame in which we're in. Verse 14 to 25, in this view, predicts the great tribulation. Uh, which would be in line with the book of Daniel in Revelation. We will talk about that next week. And verse 26 through 36 summarize comments about the return of Christ. That is a view. That is a well-known view. That is not just Pastor Ben's view, but I have come to determine this is my perspective on uh, the Olivet Discourse. Now, there are other variations and interpretations I will not have time for, but I land on this view, but I think no matter where you land, this is what I think is important. Number one, I think we should care about this. Uh, it's easy, and some of I've said this before, but you might be like, well, I just believe in pan theology, man. It's all going to pan out in the end, you know? <laughs> and... Um, I appreciate that simplicity, and sometimes I feel like I get exhausted, and that's where I land. You know, it's like, I don't want to deal with this anymore, but I do think we should care because there's words in this book, and every word in this book we care about. Amen? So, so we try our best to understand what is written here and then give ourselves wholly and completely to Jesus. We should also be generous to other views that are non-heretical, and so we should understand what is heresy. And then what is considered an in-house discussion? What should we be generous towards? I I think we should do a better job at understanding which views are in the generous category. And I think both of the views actually are to some degree. And we should be more concerned with how we live than when everything happens. That's where we should land no matter what. Now, there are three things I wanna dissect this text up into. And the first point I wanna make is the disciples wanted to know when, everything would happen. Let's look at verse one again. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said back to him, and I can't, I want to picture this. Do you see these great buildings? And they're like, yeah, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now I want to say, caption this, what came out of them after that? Because that would have been a shock. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James and John and Andrew begin to question him privately, and they asked him this question, tell, "Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled." Now, again, they're walking out of the temple. The disciples are remarking how magnificent it was. We have to get into their frame of mind. In the first century, This temple was not the first temple that was built back in Solomon's day. This was the second. Herod built this temple. Most scholars say it took him 50 to 65 years to build the temple. In fact, by the time that Jesus was ministering right here in this text, the temple was still being remodeled and they say it took another 15 years or 10 years to fully remodel this. It was so massive, it was six stories high in most of the structure, but 15 stories high in in other parts. It had massive columns, huge stones of white marble, bronze gates, and scholars tell us that much of the top was overlaid with gold and parts of it were overlaid with bronze. If you can imagine when they're On the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple, and there's these remarks about how magnificent it is. It's glistening in the sun. I mean, this would have been a sight to see. It marvels the wonders of the world for sure. This was an incredible sight. So the disciples were mesmerized, but Jesus was not impressed because he was overwhelmed by the corruption that had come to bear inside the temple. This is why he didn't feel the same that they did. So Jesus says back to the disciples, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. And they were blown away that he would say such a thing. Why? The temple represented the place of sacrifice It represented the feasts. This is where Orthodox Jews would go and gather together at least three times a year to celebrate the feasts of the Lord. This was the place of God's presence. This was where heaven touched earth. And so when Jesus said that this is going to be done away, they were like, what are you talking about? This prophecy would have stunned them because in their mind, the Messiah would destroy Rome, not Jerusalem. He would destroy Gentile paganism, not Judaism. He would build Jerusalem up, not tear it down. And he would rule from the temple, not bring it to ruin. So for them, this is flipping their mindset upside down. They can't even imagine why Jesus would say something like this. So they're grappling with the implications of that. Now they're sitting down at the Mount of Olives and they ask him, tell us, when will these things be? And... What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, this is where people have an interpretation problem, and it is where you need to make a decision. Are they asking one question or two questions? I think they're asking one question because of the framework of their theology, but to Jesus, it's two questions. They think, Jesus is gonna, they think the Messiah has a coming. They don't, they don't believe in the first and the second coming. This is not their understanding in, the Jewish the, in Jewish theology. And so when they ask, when will this be the destruction of the temple and what will be the sign that all things will be fulfilled? They're really asking two things because they're not one and the same, but they thought they would be one and the same. So to them, it's one question. To Jesus, I believe it's two. Look how Matthew words it in Matthew 24, three. It makes a little more sense. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming, the parousia, the coming of the Lord and the end of the age? Now it really looks like two questions. So these are the questions they're asking. When will the temple be destroyed? Many historians, including the Jewish historian Josephus, records that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And if you know your history, that factually happened, what Jesus said Was going to take place. Actually, it actually did. And massive stones were torn down, and the huge foundation stones were unearthed as the Roman soldiers sought to find all the gold. I mean, I actually read an account yesterday where because the, over, because the building, the structure was overlaid with gold, when Rome set it on fire, the gold melted and it found its way into the cracks and crevices of all of the foundation stones. So the reason they tore the foundation stones out was because they were looking for all the gold that had hardened underneath the rock. And when you go there today, I mean, you can actually see what Jesus said happened in 70 AD. That prophecy came to pass. But there's a second question in this for, for us because uh, we find that in this discussion, Jesus lays out much more than just the destruction of the temple. So question number two, when will all the messianic prophecies be fulfilled? Their specific words. What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Referring to the end of the age as Matthew specifically states. Now this word fulfilled is a technical term that's almost exclusively used throughout the New Testament for the final days before the coming of the Lord. It's almost exclusively used for that in the Greek language. Remember the disciples, they have the view of one coming. Jesus labors in multiple times to say there's there's two. I'm coming as the suffering servant. I'm going to come back as the conquering king. And so he's laying out um, a different perspective than they currently have have, which continues, I believe, till verse uh, 36. So Jesus told his disciples in response what would happen in the last days. Notice this. They ask when, and Jesus does not answer that specifically. There would be no debate if Jesus answered specifically about the when. That would be easy. Wouldn't it be easy? There would be no positions the reason that there are and the reason that I land on position two is because in prophetic language, it is, it's often used as sort of telescope uh, conversation where a person is prophesying something that is current and something that will be. We read that in the Old Testament all the time. And so to me, it's very congruent. But here's what Jesus says in response to their question about when. Verse, verse five, he says to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and and they will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but it's not yet the end. What's he talking about, the end? Some people interpret that to be the end, the destruction of the temple. I don't think that's what he means. I think he's talking about the actual fulfillment of the age. That's just trying to work through the interpretation difference there. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Be on your guard for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogue. That's for Jews. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. That's for everyone. And as a a testimony to them, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And in Matthew's version, he says, the gospel must be preached to all nations before the end. Then the end shall come. The end, the final end. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, the end of their life, shall be saved. Now again... Some people view this only as the destruction of the temple and that's all he's referring to. I believe he's specifically referring to the temple and broadly referring to the unfolding of the end of the age. And the reason I think that is, I I think the text seems to indicate it in multiple places and I just have too many issues with uh, what this is saying for me to buy into. This is all fulfilled in 70 uh, AD. To summarize my view, one of the things that we have done with this text for far too long, and if you hear anything that I say today, please consider this. When Jesus goes down this list of things that's going to happen, and I believe throughout the, uh, throughout the age before he returns, he is not saying that these are signs to be observed. We have used it for that. We have said that these are signs. So when wars happen, Jesus must be returning. When earthquakes happen, Jesus must be returning. When a pandemic takes place, (laughs) Jesus must be returning. We think that every time something like this happens, people get swept up, a new book gets written to think that Jesus is gonna return in that generation. We get caught up in this. But what if I told you that Jesus did not mean for any of these comments to be signs that you were to observe and know, oh, he's coming now in this generation. What if I told you that's not what he's trying to do? Instead, what if Jesus was saying, which this is what I believe, there's going to be a long delay. You're going to have human history unfold. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, plagues, pestilence, nation rise up against nation. Isn't that how we characterize human history? Aren't there classes in college that you take just about one of the world wars? Or isn't this how we actually describe the unfolding of life as we know it? I believe that's exactly what Jesus was saying, is that the destruction of the temple is gonna come and you're going to think that this is the end. But I believe he's actually extending it beyond that, saying there's gonna be famines and wars and rumors. of All of this is going to extend until the end. But these are the birth pains, not the baby. And so what we've done also is we've said, well, see, he said right there, these are signs, but they're the birth pains, and then the end's going to come. So everybody's always looking at these little signs. Do you know how many earthquakes there have been since Jesus said this? I mean, do you know how many wars that there have been I mean, I think it's the Encyclopaedia Britannica says there's 10,600 war human wars that we actually have some level of documentation on, not world wars, but I mean, just how many battles that we've had, and and so we've lost our mind, and so we think these are birth pains. He, he was using metaphoric language to just simply say it's not the baby. Okay, that it was just a metaphor. Now I think that because the Apostle Paul uses the exact same language to describe the same type of thing. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, listen to this. Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. He's using the same language to say that there is going to be this groaning in the, all of creation until the return of Christ till all things are fulfilled. That, that's the birth pains. It's gonna be thousands of years. There will be a long delay. Why did he tell us that? So that we could expect it. That we could be about his business no matter what happens on the earth. We should expect all these things are going to unfold. So that's what I think. So he goes through this list. Let's go through it real quick, shall we? I think we shall. <laughs> Number one is deception. Jesus said, many will come in my name and claim that they are, that they are me. Now, <laughs> Jesus had a relatively small following at this point. Now there were crowds that gathered around him for the miracles, but when he didn't present himself as the Messiah in the way they thought he should, the crowds dispersed. When he was leaving the temple, he only had 12 with him. Maybe there were a couple more that aren't mentioned in the scripture, but he had a really small following. So if somebody were to claim a prophecy like this, hey, many people in the future, they're, they're going to claim that they're me. I mean, that to me is an outstanding prophecy. Who's going to claim that they're the leader of 12 people? I mean, this is like, I mean, if you're going to choose anybody, I mean, I'm just saying that's kind of an astounding thing to say to me because he's got a small following. And so obviously it makes sense that there would be a Wikipedia page devoted, not saying Wikipedia is the best resource, amen, check your sources, but there's actually, if you want to knock yourself out, there's a Wikipedia page devoted to how many people have called themselves Jesus Christ, Right now, there's like a Siberian cult and the guy claims to be Jesus. There's several of them all over the world. There's one in Korea, China, Mexico. There are, There's people in the United States, they claim to be Jesus. Some have 10,000 followers. Right now, we're living in a time where people have followings larger than our, the size of our church. So this has been going on forever. as long, From the day Jesus said it, At some point, people started to say, hey, I'm the guy, follow me. And Jesus told us it was gonna happen. Thousands have claimed this. Number two, he says there'll be conflict, wars, rumors of wars, nations will rise against nation. I personally cannot accept that Jesus was saying from 33 AD to 70 AD, all of that's gonna happen. I don't think that view fits into how I'm reading it. Wars and rumors of wars. Na- how many nations rose up against you? I've read the perspective. There's just, it's not as much as people claim to have happened. There are some things that are significant in history, but to me, it's not enough for what he's saying here. Number three, natural disasters. There'll be earthquakes in many places. So there were some earthquakes in the first century, but this is a reference to many earthquakes in many different places. There will be famines. There will be pestilence. There will be COVID-19. There will be plagues. These things are going to, but that's not the end. Why do we lose our God-given mind? Number four persecution. Jesus said that his followers would be flogged publicly and then dragged before courts. To me, that's kind of a reference to a Jew and a Gentile. Persecution only began in the first century, and it's never stopped, and it will not stop until Christ returns. That is why we cannot have any type of eschatological view based on the convenience that we will not suffer. Some people develop their view in the end times solely based on, On how they're gonna get out of any suffering. Then explain why 55,000 people a year are dying for their faith in Christ. It is entirely a Western view to have that perspective. I don't wanna suffer, I don't want you to suffer, but Jesus said we're gonna suffer. That's a fact, it's going to happen. So let's start there. Number five, family division. He said the persecution is gonna get so bad. That brother will betray brother and sister and father and children will betray their parents. Can you even imagine this? Can you even imagine this? I mean, for us as families, can you imagine your children betraying you? I mean, this is unfathomable. That's intense. It's going to split homes. If people and, and I want to say this: half-hearted Christianity is not going to split homes. It's people that really believe in Jesus, people that really follow Jesus. It's the all-in follower of Christ that will split homes. But today, it's the casual Christianity. It's like you can follow Jesus and then do whatever you want to do with your life. And friend, I'm telling you, that's why this is a time to be all-in for Christ. There's nothing else this book talks about, but he's saying that the kind of Christianity that I'm talking about will split homes. Now, I don't want that. Be at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. But I believe people that are really following Christ, you're not going to get out of persecution or conflict. It's coming. It's coming. And it's already here. It's going to persist until the end of the age. Gospel proclamation, number six. Jesus said the gospel must be preached to all nations before the end. And listen again in my interpretation, I would struggle with Jesus saying that in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, if he just meant before 70 AD. And this is where you have to make a decision, guys. I mean, really, he just meant to say the gospel must be proclaimed in all the world until the end. And they say the end was 70 AD when they have that perspective. So I'm just telling you why I can't buy that perspective is because to me, it sounds like it's going all the way up until his return. The gospel is being sent now by missionary, technology, Bible translations all over the world. Aren't you thankful for technology, at least for this reason? I mean, we can talk down about media and technology and all that kind of stuff, but the reality is, is that God is also using it through so many people. There's a man by the name of Lauren Cunningham, who is the leader and founder of YOM. He's currently very ill with cancer, and so you could pray for him, but his heart, his desire is to get the gospel, is to get the Bible in an understandable language across the whole earth. That is his desire. I love that. I was reading about it this week, and guys, we are, we are going to get there. I'm telling you, Bibles are going to be written into every known language. Right now, Wycliffe Global tells us the Bible is translated into seven, the whole Bible in 724 languages. In addition to that, the New Testament has another 1617 languages and they're working on right now, the whole Bible for those languages and their small, smaller portions are books of the Bible, additional 1248. So half of human languages have some form of the Bible written in their language. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. And so this is what Jesus says is going to happen. But this is where he lands the plane. Jesus instructed all disciples how to live in the last days. Again, the period before he comes. According to scripture, the last days is the time frame that we would be living in. And the best question for every believer is how should we live and prepare ourselves for what's coming? Some people move to the mountains. Some people fill up on food, water, ammunition. It's... True. And some people put tape on their camera phones, you know, just because they don't want Big Brother Google listening in on their conversations. I think we should use that. If Google's listening to us, I think we should preach the gospel more in our homes. <laughs> I think we should be able to talk to Siri, and Siri talked back to us, totally got saved, you know. I mean, <laughs> Siri, how do you get saved? (laughs) Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness. I mean, it just should be, you know, whatever. I think you should be scared if you're doing stuff on your phones and devices that you don't want nobody to see. I think you should be concerned if stuff's going on in your homes that you don't need people to hear. But I think that we should have consecrated homes and just be preaching and sharing the love and the life of God so much that we want Google or whoever else is actually peering in on us. Please do. Please take good records of what's happening in thy home. I think that would be fantastic, don't you? But, but some people think this is what we need to do to prepare ourselves. I think the best way to prepare ourselves for the return of Christ is to become as spiritually mature as we can. That's what I believe Jesus goes after. Throughout his response to the disciples, there are a couple imperative statements that I think are very practical, and these statements should echo into our hearts today, and here, here, here they are. Number one, don't be deceived, he says. His specific terminology was, don't allow anyone to mislead you. The word mislead is to be seduced, to wander, to go astray, to go off the the right path. Don't allow anyone to mislead you because the primary strategy of the enemy has always been deception, to influence people who are not yet followers of Jesus or those who are followers of Jesus away from the path, away from what Jesus said and the clarity of his commands for those of us that are seeking to follow him. Even a preoccupation with the study of the final days can distort how we live in our present day. How many people have overemphasized and overfocused on the return of Jesus or the blood moons and all of these things that are going to happen, and they have lost sight of loving their neighbor, of sharing the gospel, of having integrity, of doing right and living righteously? How many people have done that in the name of wanting to prepare themselves for the end? Jesus says, Don't be misled by anyone or anything. Don't allow yourself to be misled, to, be, to move astray from what? From what Jesus said and what we are supposed to know. See, there are things we don't know and there are things we do know and we wanna master on what we, we do know. I recently heard a story about a special forces soldier who dealt with the cult leader, David Koresh, and his following in Waco, Texas. You maybe heard about this, of course, 1983. There was this compound, I forget what it was, the branch, Davidian branch, um, This man was a leader of a cult and he made people believe he had the gift of prophecy and really only he knew uh, the return of the Lord. And so they had a compound and all these people moved uh, into Waco, Texas to live there in this compound. Eventually folks got wind that this was not um, healthy. And so the authorities came to do something about it. And there was essentially a standoff. 20 people who lived in that compound were killed. And one of the special forces agents was on an interview that I heard this last week. And he basically said he he was the one and part of the team that had to go in to clean up all the bodies after everything was done. And they had to get the women and children out. And I mean, just a horrific thing, if you know anything about this. And he said this, he said, when I was in the house, I made a commitment to know the Bible as best as I can because I saw how far deception can really go. And thats not it the genius of God to give us a book? <laughs> I just think it is the genius of God. I mean, we might not know as much as we need to know, but he gave us a book so that we all could be accountable to the same thing. I love it that whenever I preach, I mean, talk about accountability. Like, I'm preaching the same book you have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like intimidating, you know? So that's an incredible thing that God has done. Every church throughout the world, is preaching from the same, hopefully, from the same, from the same book. <laughs> there are a couple translations we do not endorse, New World Translation. You know, the JW's got it wrong. Anyways, the point is, is that God gave us a book so that we could all know the measuring rod, the standard by which you and I are to live. And we should commit ourselves, like this special force, forces agent said, that this helps us to steer clear of deception. How do we stay away from deception? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. I told you a few weeks ago, if you just give me a Bible and I go into the closet for like three months, I come out weird. No, I mean, it's not intelligence. It's We need each other to have checks and balances. It's really important. How many people, when I'm meeting with them, and and I've done this before too, I've changed my mind on things because we need to be sharpened and accountable. It's not just my view. It's that we have to actually be sharpened by perspectives and how we study the, the word of God. And so I love it. The spirit of God, the word of God, the people of God. This helps us steer clear of deception. Number two, don't worry or fear. Some may ask, why did Jesus even tell us any details about the last days? Why didn't he just say, it's going to happen? There will be a dun-da-da-dun, and then you'll know. (laughs) Why couldn't it have just been clear? We would have no problems. The body of Christ could have been in more unity. But here's why. Whatever we believe about tomorrow affects how we live today. And he felt that it was necessary for us to have right information so that we could have right expectations. Isn't it true that when you get right information, you have right expectations? You know what you're walking into. Jesus did this many times. He told his disciples what was going to happen. And he said, I said this to you so that your joy may be complete. I said this to you so that you would have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. What did he say? I will overcome the world. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but guess what? I've overcome the world. If you already know that Jesus overcomes the world, then no matter what tribulation might befall you, you're following the one who wins. You're following the one who told you what's gonna happen. I love that. You know, there are studies that have been done to show us That children who are afraid when they go to amusement parks to get on roller coasters, now these days you just pop up a little video on YouTube and you show them the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights, and you can actually walk your children through the entire ride before they get on it. And if you do that, there's like a huge or a high chance that they'll be willing to do something they weren't willing to do. Why? Because now they know what to expect. It squashes the fear that they have. They're afraid of what they don't know. I don't want to get on a roller coaster and have it take me where I don't know and do things I don't understand. But if you can show them in advance what it's going to be like, these studies show that the chances of a child being able to do something is actually really 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 high. Now, a couple of you are like, "Not my child." Listen. I may not be talking about your child. But this is what Jesus does. He gives us right information to set right expectation so that we don't have to fear anything. Friends, can we just agree today, we have nothing to fear at all. So fear is an unacceptable proposition to a Christian. We might experience it, but we don't yield to it. Jesus is telling us what to expect. He said, you can expect suffering, you can expect a long delay, but you can expect my return. That's what he says. Number three, don't give up contend until the end. With a long delay and much happening all over the world, it can be hard to stay the course, but he's like, you must, you must. We have to stay focused on the mission of Jesus or we're going to give up on what he said and what we're called to be about. Let me say it to you this way. Our world is sick. Our world is sick and they're trying to heal themselves and they're using methods and ways that we don't agree with because we follow Jesus and his words. A lot of Christians get angry about the world and how they're trying to fix themselves. We're not supposed to get angry. We understand that the world is trying to fix itself. We don't agree with the way that they're doing it. But if we're the ones that have the right way, why aren't we rolling up our sleeves and getting more involved then? If we're the ones with the cure, then why are we so angry about people who don't know how to fix the problem when we're not involved in fixing it? It, seems that doesn't, it doesn't seem logical to me to be upset about people trying to fix themselves when all of us were there at some point in our life. I tried to fix myself with drugs and alcohol and immorality. I tried to do that. I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was right. Right? And all it did was bring pain and destruction. And the reason that I kept doing it, the reason you kept doing those things or whatever your vice was, was because you wanted to feel better. We wanted to get fixed and we learned that it doesn't fix us. So this is what I see in the world and I don't always resonate with angry Christians or fearful Christians like this is a time for the church to rise up and be triumphant and bring the gospel of Jesus to a world that needs it. I just think we have lost sight of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change the human heart. It's like we don't believe it works anymore. And I want, friends, I want to tell you, it works. It works. The gospel works. So when I see someone trying to fix themselves with another message or another method, I don't get angry. I don't get fearful. I understand what they're trying to do. But that becomes a responsibility on my part to roll my sleeves up, get to know this book well, be led by the Spirit of God even more, and share with folks what I know because I was lost, but now I'm found. And that's my desire for everyone until the end of my life or the end of the age. That's the desire. Jesus says, don't give up. But did you know, I'm closing. I'm closing. Get ready. Get ready. I'm closing. I'm I'm coming down. Um, did you know the world, everyone in the world, no matter what they say, they, they, they may say they don't, they, they think we're crazy. You Christians are crazy. You believe Jesus is going to return. You believe there's going to be end of the world. You believe there's going to be end of the world. That's crazy talk. Everybody believes that there's going to be an end of the world. I'm going to prove it. What about this environmental crisis? Doesn't it sound to you like the world thinks it's going to end? People's mindset, like the environment's going to crumble. Remember the ozone? That thing, is like the hole's going to open up and just suck us out. We're gone. I grew up as a boy going to school. I thought we were going to get sucked out. The ozone was just going to take us. I had all kinds of vivid dreams of what might happen. And now they're like, oh, the ozone is repairing itself. But, you know, science is evolving. I'm not trying to, you know, bash anybody. I mean, (laughs) you know, there's this gal that they put up there and she's all intense. Like the world's going to end in 15 years or I don't want to name names. I could, I won't. But they're trying to push it. They're telling everyone the world's going to end unless we do whatever they tell us. It's the propagation of fear, is it not? Okay, so you, you guys are in my world. What about war? Who's got nuclear bombs? Now, when we talk about who's got nuclear bombs, and we're a little scared about that. I mean, that's a little frightening to think about the tyrants that are in the world today that have their hand on nuclear bombs. But what are we saying? It, it, what is the world saying? The world's saying there are people with nucle- nuclear bombs and a war could end civilization as we know it. That message is going out today. N- number three is global pandemic. I mean, we went through one. And I mean, it, I, I remember like you couldn't touch even a surface because there was something that you couldn't see that was on the su- I mean, we, <laughs> it, it was crazy. I mean, during COVID, like again, everybody's figuring it out, but it was like, you don't even know what to touch. I remember walking across the street and like we're looking at people and neighbors like, I, can't, I don't think I can walk next to you, can I? I don't think so. And the idea was that, and, I, and I'm not trying to be funny, but the idea was that if I walk next to you, I might die. That was, what was, <laughs> am I living in the same world as you? You guys remember that, right? Or you're like, don't talk about it again, don't, don't, don't. please, please, Pastor Ben, I just got over it, I did. I did. What about aliens or artificial intelligence? Like, is Elon Musk going to kill us all? I still don't know why conservatives love this guy so much. I watched an interview of this guy saying, he's a transhumanist. He's trying to merge man and machine. That should scare you. Conservatives, that should, if you are what you should be, you shouldn't be like, I like this guy. You should be like, this guy's out of his mind. He's probably got a machine in his mind. I mean, he believes this stuff. We're living in a weird time. I am not going to link up to Neuralink. I am not doing it. But we're living in a time where it's like, AI, man, it's going to take over and kill us all. The world thinks that there's an end that's coming. They do. So we're not crazy to know that there is an end coming. However, we are crazy if we don't realize what that means, the end is not going to come with our fear and our preparing and do all that. We are looking forward to the glorious return of our King. And he's saying to the church, it's time to rise up and do what you've called to do. Follow me, do what I did. Jesus wasn't afraid one day in his life. He knew why he was here. That's the church. Church has to know why they're here. Why are you here? Why are we, why are we not in heaven right now? We're here to do something and we're going to get caught up in fear if we don't be about it. That's the truth. And this is why the church can't fall asleep right now because we have a calling. We have a purpose. We know why we're here. We got to reach as many people as we can. I'm not trying to freak you out today. I'm just saying this is our calling. And so the, God is waking us up. There's a revival happening in our land to wake us up, to say the time is now. And, and we, whether Jesus returns in our lifetime or not, we only have so much time as a human being anyways. And so th- this is, this is how, how we land. We can't give up on our mission. We can't stop speaking our message. Our king is coming. Let me read this to you and, I'll, and I am done. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Listen to what Peter says about this subject. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. See, he's telling us in advance what's going to happen. Okay, we know. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it is since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. The earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Watch this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the purpose of the church in the last days. Jesus said it, Paul said it, Peter said it, and we should say it as well. This is our purpose. God is patient at this time because he wants more people to have a saving knowledge and a transformation to come to know the Savior that's given his life for them. That's what this is all about. Why is this taking time? Why is there a long delay? Because God is patient and God loves us and God wants more to come to know him, like really come to know him, not just get involved in a religion, not just join a church, but to really know Jesus Christ, to really know him. That's why he's being patient right now. So as much as we want to hasten his return, friend, thank God that he's patient because I've got some loved ones that don't yet know him, don't you? We got some people in our country and the world that don't know him and I'm thankful that he's patient and we need to pray them in. And I think that's how we're going to close this sermon if you don't mind. You're like, no, I don't mind you closing the sermon at all. Amen. <laughs> why, don't you go ahead and, why don't you go ahead and stand? All right. <laughs> I don't mind at all, Ben. Go ahead and close that sermon. Amen. Thank you, Lord. This morning, I want to remind you as we pray that if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have not been forgiven through his finished work, you're not sure where you're at with God, you can know for sure that you're in relationship with him, you're forgiven by him, and you will always be with him for eternity. You can know that for sure today. It's to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess him as Lord and Savior, to believe in your heart, to give your whole life over to him. It's not heart. It's just surrender. You can do that today. If you have not done that, what we're asking is that you come down after the service and pray with one of us to receive Jesus, to give your life to Jesus. Don't wait. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, and you're here for a reason. So if you're here and that's you, please come down and pray with us if that that is you. Also, we we talk a lot about rededication because we're living in a time where we just need to be all in, following him, completely all in. Whatever he says is what it is. And so if that's you today, rededicate your life to Jesus. Make that right. Say, Lord, I want to follow you completely, full surrender. I'm not messing around. I'm not playing games. That's what I want. And then lastly, before I pray, we have the water, uh, the water is full, it's warm, we have shorts, we have shirts. If you've never been water baptized and you believe in Jesus today, um, we had a man walk down last night and he's been under conviction for two months to get water baptized. And um, he's come back to the Lord and it was awesome. We got, we got to baptize him uh, last night. And so here, here's the thing, it's better to leave wet and obedient than dry and disobedient. So if you need to be water baptized, don't push it off. I mean, it's fine if you need your family and friends to be here. We're going to fill it up next week, too. But make plans. Make yourself ready. We'll be up here. Please come forward at the, uh, after I pray, and uh, let's get you baptized. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the Word of God that sets a pace in our life. It gives us a perspective that we need. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to live in the days in which we're living and to do so with an urgency with the gospel that we would share with as many people as we can. You would give us divine opportunities in the days ahead to fully and completely do as you say in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said. Thanks for listening. If, if you'd, you'd like, like more information about, about Ignite Northwest Global Church, Ministries, go to our website, go to our NWC website, four dot org, dot org. or download our app While in any there, of the apps stores, stores by searching discipleship Northwest School and Square. Pastor